The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 5 and Book 6, Chapters 1 and 2. In Book 5, Chapter 1, Claude Frollo is visited in his canonic cell by the king's physician, Jacques Quatier, and his mysterious companion, whom we later discover is none other than the king himself. This stranger, the disguised king, says he is there to seek advice in the realms of medicine and astrology, both of which Claude Frollo roundly rejects. When asked what he does believe in, Frollo responds, with a gloomy smile that belies his answer, I believe in God. And later, in a declaration unqualified by any facial contortion, alchemy. His elaborations on these opinions only make Quatier feel more and more justified in his contention that Claude Frollo is a madman. Nevertheless, the stranger asks whether he can be initiated in Claude Frollo's science. Frollo says they will begin by reading, quote, the marble letters of the alphabet, the granite pages of the book, unquote. In other words, the secrets encoded in Gothic architecture. Thereafter, the archdeacon, it was said, held frequent meetings with the king. In chapter 2, Hugo elaborates at length on Claude Frollo's pronouncement that, quote, this one will kill the other, the book will kill the building, unquote. This thought, Hugo tells us, had two phases. First, it was the terror of a priest who sees, quote, the future intellect undermining faith, opinion superseding belief, the world shaking off the yoke of Rome, unquote. And second, the lament of the artist and scholar, that printing would destroy architecture as, quote, the great book of humanity, unquote. The tone is set for the next scene when we learn that on this day, the provost of Paris is, for no reason at all, in a very sulky and disagreeable mood. Then, to add insult to judicial injury, we learn that the deputy there to open proceedings without him, who will hear the case of Quasimodo, is deaf. Thus begins a merciless, hilarious, and ultimately heartbreaking lampoon of the medieval justice system. All the details of this, quote, case which had not been provided for by law, that of one deaf man questioning another, unquote. From the judge's mechanical and stupid assurance that Quasimodo has answered his questions as all prisoners were wont to do, to his indignant assumption that the audience's outburst of merriment was provoked by some irreverent reply from the prisoner, to the cruel sentence vindictively imposed by the provost on the poor, hapless bell-ringer. All this amounts to one big tragicomedy of errors. We then move from the courthouse back to the greve, where we turn our gaze away from the lively and noisy square and toward the tiny, barred, ground-floor cell built into the wall of the Tour Roland. We learn that in mourning for her father, who had died while on a crusade, Madame Roland had the cell hewed out of the wall, shut herself up in it forever, and gifted all the rest of her property to God and the poor. At her death, she bequeathed this cell to, quote, all afflicted women, 
mothers, widows, or daughters, who had great need to pray for others or themselves, and who wished to bury themselves alive in token of their great grief or great penitence." Unquote. Hugo says that the people of that day, with their unreasoning and far from subtle piety, though they might venerate the sacrifice, were incapable of comprehending the suffering of one who, quote, voluntarily vowed to everlasting lamentation, unquote. He clearly wants to see to it that we do, so that rather than looking upon this cell dismissively as the rat hole that holds the recluse, we are able to see beneath it too that remnant of life flickering in a grave, and to hear the murmur of that suffering soul. The next of my posts to the Facebook group was called The Literary Microscope. And if I had to keep a scrapbook of the things I've written that mean the most to me personally, this would definitely go in it. Reading these last chapters of Notre Dame de Paris, I was particularly struck by one passage, because of its own merits and because it recalled another passage I love from a lecture by Vladimir Nabokov on Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Both passages helped me to more deeply understand the real and momentous value of great literature. I reread Anna Karenina last summer. I've said before that this is the only novel I have physically thrown across the room, and yet I wanted to read it again, and I want to read it with you. Despite my outburst, I love Tolstoy, because though I might sometimes find his abstract ideas abhorrent, I always find his concrete observations enlightening. Tolstoy sees with a penetrating vision, and he has a powerful and virtuosic ability to make his vision clear and real to me. I like to underline my favorite lines in books, particularly those that offer some new insight or illuminating formulation. In Anna Karenina, I quickly gave up the practice. I would have been marking every line. I will offer the following as just a single example of this ability, but one powerful enough to make the point. Tolstoy is describing a character's anxious, timid anticipation of an encounter at the skating ground with the woman he desperately, madly loves. I will have Tolstoy express this feeling as only he can. Quote, he knew she was there by the rapture and the terror that seized on his heart. She was standing talking to a lady at the opposite end of the ground. There was apparently nothing striking either in her dress or her attitude. But for Levin, she was as easy to find in that crowd as a rose among nettles. Everything was made bright by her. She was the smile that shed light on all around her. He walked down for a long while avoiding looking at her as at the sun, but seeing her as one does the sun without looking. I can't read that last line without tears. After finishing the novel, I read Nabokov's lecture. In it, he made an observation that I found profoundly illuminating of Tolstoy's distinct talents, but more than that, of the history of literature, and further, of the value of literature to the individual human soul. 
Reminded of Nabokov's observation by the passage in Hugo, I was easily able to find it again, because I had not only underlined it, but surrounded it with brackets and asterisks, like little marginal fireworks signifying its vital and noteworthy importance. So, here is Nabokov's brilliant insight. After sharing a remarkable scene in Anna Karenina that captures the beauty, drama, mystery, and terror surrounding the birth of a child, he makes this stunningly important point. Quote, Mark incidentally that the whole history of literary fiction as an evolutionary process may be said to be a gradual probing of deeper and deeper layers of life. It is quite impossible to imagine either Homer in the 9th century BC or Cervantes in the 17th century of our era. It is quite impossible to imagine them describing in such wonderful detail childbirth. The question is not whether certain events or emotions are not suitable ethically or aesthetically. The point I want to make is that the artist, like the scientist, in the process of evolution of art and science, is always casting around, understanding a little more than his predecessor, penetrating further with a keener and more brilliant eye, and this is the artistic result." I cannot overstate how important I think that idea is for understanding the role of literature in a person's education, in the cultivation of their soul, in the development of their ability to examine their lives and to discover meaning therein. If great scientists across history have discovered and shown us with ever greater precision, subtlety, and fundamentality how the physical world works— Great artists have done the same in the realm of the spirit. One might think that while the motion of the heavenly bodies or the principles of atomic theory are sophisticated and complex, what it means to feel the apprehensive pangs of a feverish love or the wonder and fear of childbirth is straightforward. Not so. Those feelings, too, must be conceptualized for us to truly notice them, understand them, recall them, relish them, find meaning in them. Literature lights our way. Hugo had his own way of making this point in Notre Dame de Paris. After discussing the ignorant insensitivity of the people of Paris to the suffering of the poor souls who devote their lives to prayer and penitence in the barren cell of the Tour Roland, who instead see only the poor recluse, he says this, quote, People saw things in this way then, without metaphysics, without exaggeration, without magnifying glass, with the naked eye. The microscope had not been invented yet, either for material or for spiritual things. Unquote. Civilization has benefited from a long evolution in art. Thanks to authors such as Tolstoy and Hugo, the literary microscope has been invented. We need only use it to peer inside the human soul, to see things we could never have seen with the naked eye, and to apply our newfound understanding to the flourishing of our own spirits. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called Other Favorites. 
The line about the literary microscope was my far and away favorite because of its relationship to my very purpose in teaching literature and hosting this book club. But here are some other favorites from these chapters. Should I ever find myself confronted with the false cordiality of learned men, each congratulating the other insincerely on his achievements, I will recall these lines, and especially the phrase, a cup of honeyed poison. Quote, then began between the doctor and the archdeacon one of those congratulatory prefaces with which it was, at this period, customary to precede every conversation between learned men, and which did not hinder them from hating each other most cordially. However, it is just so today. The lips of every learned man who compliments another scholar are like a cup of honeyed poison." Unquote. I think we are all familiar with the phenomenon of some conniving opportunist attaching himself to a man of wealth and prestige, making himself seem indispensable to the person's well-being, and then milking the relationship for all its monetary worth. But never had I thought of this phenomenon in terms of alchemy, extracting worldly advantages from maladies like gold from lead. Quote, Claude Frollo's congratulations to Jacques Quatier dwelt particularly on the numerous worldly advantages which that worthy physician in the course of his much-envied career had contrived to extract from every royal malady, the result of a better and surer alchemy than the search for the philosopher's stone." Unquote. I love the following quote for its poetic expression of Claude Frollo's intense ambition. Also, some of you may recall that I wrote a post for our discussion of 93 called Higher Than God. This passage could be added to the list of those which capture the grand scope of a character's purpose or his personal pride by elevating it above God himself. Quote, No, said the archdeacon, seizing Tourangeau by the arm, while a lightning flash of enthusiasm kindled his dull eye. No. I do not deny science. I have not crawled flat on my face all these years, digging the earth with my nails, amid the countless mazes of the cavern, without seeing far before me, at the end of the dark tunnel, a light, a flame, something, doubtless the reflection of the dazzling central laboratory where sages and patient souls have taken God by surprise." Unquote. Hugo has shown us in several contexts the simplicity of the medieval mind and way of life. The spiritual microscope had not been invented, nor, he shows us in this passage, the legal one. Quote, the common law of the provost and viscounty of Paris had not yet been elaborated. Everything about it was clear, expeditious, and explicit. It went straight to the mark, and at the end of every path, unconcealed by brambles or briars, the wheel, the gallows, or the pillory were plainly to be seen from the very outset. At least you knew what was coming." Unquote. And finally, I say we revive the practice of explaining the purpose of a building by a device inscribed above the door. I will need a Latin scholar to help me translate the following, to be carved on the threshold of my school. Learn, laugh, love, and grow wise.
Quote, As was the fashion of that period, a Latin inscription on the wall informed the learned passers-by of the pious purpose of this cell. The custom was retained until the middle of the 16th century of explaining the purpose of a building by a brief device inscribed above the door. In those days, every edifice embodied a thought. Unquote. I look forward to sharing our next reading with you tomorrow. It's a good one. <laughs>